Welcome to the Exit Insights podcast. This is the channel where we focus on identifying what's required to help you build valuation in your business so that you can maximize and exit on your terms. Today, I've got Michael Masterton. Michael's an expert in identifying the, the non-tangible assets in your business and assigning a value to them to increase your valuation. Michael's part of a group called Everage. They're based in Australia, but the type of things they do, they work online and remotely so they can do it all around the world. They've worked with clients here in the US and in, in the here in the UK as well, rather, as well as the US. And you know, they've just got a great track record working with mid-market businesses. Michael, over to you. Why don't you give us an insight into how you got into this line of work? No, thanks, Daryl. Um, I accidentally joined a startup as higher number six, and uh, we ended up growing that to 8,000 people. Um, we then got bought by a company called Omnicom, $40 billion company, and at 25, I was CEO. Um, after 14 years there, I've done a couple of mid-market turnarounds, one in freight and logistics, one in FMCG, and um, I did a number of scale-up businesses, and, and one of those businesses um, got a client called Everage. And one day I got chatting to the owner, and that back then it was a very small company about 10 years ago, and he started to explain things to me that I should have known should have known being what I thought was a pretty successful CEO, you know, grown a big company, I turn around two mid-sized companies. And the things he talked about were actually all the things I didn't know about how to run a business. And over the space of about three to six months, he slowly explained, you know, to me that really the way that I understood how business and value was generated was not quite right. Um, and that's because I used to think that the value was in things like balance sheets and fixed asset registers and P&Ls. And whilst revenue is obviously an, an important contributor, often there's other factors in the business. And we've since come to call these things intangible assets. And, you know, I mean, we've now grown Everage from, you know, a small little business in New Zealand, um, even though I'm an Australian. So I um, then, then replicated the business into Australia. And now we're in Singapore as well. As you mentioned, we've got a number of UK clients, US clients. In fact, we've got clients from all around the world. And it's, it's really everyone from... Literally, the guy who hasn't even found his garage yet, um, often wondering, should I even find my garage and, and build a business, all the way through to some of the world's largest companies like Fortune 100 companies. Um, and I think we've worked across literally every product and or service you can imagine. Um, and I don't think anyone's been more surprised by us than that. And it's really these assets that you can't kick with your toe. Um, they're, they're, if they're on the balance sheet, they're normally at cost. And, you know, the one thing we all know about cost is it often has zero correlation to value. Um, they're definitely not on the fixed asset register. And the P&L, they're often hidden as to how they're driving the value. And that's really what we do. We help companies understand where the value is in their business. At some point when there's some kind of capital event, either an exit, an IPO, divestment, um, be able to explain to the investor or the buyer what that value is, where it is, and more importantly, how it's not going to disappear out the back door. Um, and then we obviously work with our friends at Succession Plus, both in Australia and uh, and now the UK, about really getting those business owners ready. It's a fascinating story, Michael, because you know there's a lot of literature out there about and and I guess consultants helping business owners to get you know work on their business rather than in their business. 
and that message is coming across. You know, we all know that, hey, to, to, you know, one of the sayings I have is the more I work in my business, the less it's worth. And there's things like that. So can you give us some examples of, of what are the areas you work on to identify value? Because, you know, it's easy in a goods-based economy. We can have a look at a product and we've got some proprietary products there and you go, you know, KFC is one of the examples I play with. If you want to get KFC, you have to go to a KFC store to get it. They've got their formula, 11, you know, herbs and spices, whatever it is, you know, two people in the company have got the recipe to that formula. I don't know, but it's all protected. And from a, a good, it's easy to see and visualize how you can protect that as a piece of IP and therefore it's worth something. In a service-based economy, what is it you look for and, and how do you identify and, and I guess, uh, project that value to a buyer? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And, you know, one of the things I've, I've learned in my career, it, it's often not the answers I come up with, it's finding the right question to ask. And for us, it really comes down to something, you know, really going back to first principles, which is how are you driving margin and or market share? And, and look, they're really two key words because when you think about margin and market share, if you're operating at comparable margins or market share to your competitors, what that indicates to us is you don't have very good intangible assets. And if you do, you're definitely not utilizing them. If you've got above market margin and or market share, you almost certainly have to have good intangible assets. And same in reverse, if you're suffering and your competitors beating you up on margin and or market share, that normally indicates they have really good intangible assets. Now, it doesn't really matter what you call it. Um, and depending on who you talk to, they'll all call it different things. You know, you mentioned IP. The reason we don't use IP is because unfortunately, everyone goes straight to patents and trademarks. And for most businesses, patents are either irrelevant or actually they can even be dangerous. Um, if you're talking to an accountant, they might call it goodwill. If you're talking to Warren Buffett, he'll call it an economic moat. If I'm often talking to some of our manufacturing clients, they'll talk about their secret source. You know, competitive advantage, unfair edge, it almost doesn't matter what you call it. It's how are you gonna not just take the hill, but how are you gonna hang on to the hill if we use a battle analogy? And that's where we then break it down into, okay, that's great, but what does it break down into? And you know, as I mentioned, accountants will only get down to goodwill. Well, it then drops further down into you know, a variety of buckets, including things like your customer lists, you know, your supplier information. If you're a manufacturer, it's something like your bill of materials. Um, you know, all of this ultimately gets captured in this thing called your brand. Your brand is often like a scorecard or a capture point for all of your other intangible assets. And often really key intangible assets we find in most businesses is the networks and the relationships and making sure that there's multiple points of contact. In particular, if you're going through an exit um, situation, because the first thing the new owner says is how, how do I move those networks and relationships to me? In particular, making sure that you've got your business under management, you know, you've put in an ESOP, for example, obviously with you guys, um, and then you can get into things like registered rights, like patents, trademarks. But again, most of the time we find the real value is actually protected by what we call trade secrets or confidential information. In other words, it's just not telling people how you do what you do. And that can even go into things like pricing information. Um, so once you start to break your business down and really start to create that intangible asset register, because if you think about it, if I go into a company, they can give me their fixed asset register, they can give me their P&L, they can give me their balance sheet. But if I take their enterprise value, 
less their fixed assets, their debt and their cash, I'm normally left with a really big number. And in our experience, it's normally, in most businesses, it's 90%. You know, in Succession Plus, for example, it's probably 100%. No one's going to buy you for your desk, your chairs, your computers, your laptops. They're going to buy you for your brand, your networks, your relationships, your customer lists, all the people listening to this podcast. That's where the real value is. Yet, it's you know, in most businesses, it's certainly not written down. And if it's not written down, then you don't know what the risks are around that asset. In other words, a key staff member's leaving and going to your competitors and more importantly, these are the questions that a buyer, especially if they've got us on the buy side, will certainly be asking to push your value down. So you want to be able to defend the value in your business. And then the third is being able to explain how those assets are driving your profitability, your revenue, your market share, and your margin. And if you can't link those, then in fairness, the investor's kind of going, what am I buying? Yeah. Um, because I know the value is not in the balance sheet. Um, yeah, and if it is, it's probably not the sort of business I want to buy. It's you make some great points, and it's and and this is a topic that's near to my heart, Michael. And 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 the point that you said earlier is is what are the things that are happening in your business that generate you the extra margin, and you know that, that create the extra profit and enable you to be more more profitable than others in your industry in your sector, and to just you know and and you know so they, that's how it appears on your financial statements and your balance sheet or your your, your P and L at least. And the thing that's you know really interesting is um, your know, accountants you know just lump all of that together and call it goodwill, and and that's overly simplified. And I think what business owners out there listening to are going, yeah, just calling that goodwill doesn't help me. What do I have to do to get those things that that you know specifically get, guide me? Can you show me how? What do I have to do to generate those those extra margins? And you touched on brand. Well. Brand, I think, is an outcome of all the things you do that build your reputation, and therefore people start being attracted to your brand as opposed to your competitor's brand. What do I have to do to build my brand? And they're some of the things that we get involved in. And um, you know, you, you bang on. We we haven't in in a service based world. I don't think we've we've identified or landed on the the right term. Is it IP? You know, you know people talk about productizing your service so that um, you can be consistent. You know, so that the owners, it's not, it's no longer dependent on key people. Some people have models or methodologies that they work to. Some people have, you know, nice pricing formulas, you know, and can communicate that to the market. And and simple things that I love that, you know, perhaps I haven't even thought of before that it's going to be new to people is, is your bill of materials. Just simply your supplier list. Who's your mix of suppliers? Um, and how do you make sure you're not dependent on just one or two suppliers? So it really is, by the sounds of it, looking at every aspect, every step in your operational workflow and going, how do we get that 1% better? And keep you know, looking at that 1%, 1%, 1%, you know, so that we're no longer operating at the benchmark. We're, we're leaving the benchmark for dead. Yeah, and I think, you know, I always sort of like to think about examples. You know, we worked with one of our clients, you know, we've been working with them for eight years. They've been around for 30 and when I first met him, he literally said, look, we don't have any IP. And I said, well, hang on. You've got like 80% market share. You get better margins than your competitors. You've got to be doing something right. And he was the one that said, oh, you mean my secret sauce? I'm like, yeah, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't really matter what you call it. And when you kind of unpacked it, you know, they had an ability to run their business. And in fairness, his management team had actually departed and formed his biggest competitor 10 years earlier. 
yet they still didn't get it right. They didn't have, you know, a, an equivalent market share. And that's because there was a whole bunch of key trade secrets that were still in his head. Um, anyway, we, we worked with that client at the start of this year to help them exit. They thought, you know, based on um, some, account, some accounting advice, in fact, the evaluation said they were worth 35 million, maybe 45 million. We looked at it and said, you're worth 60 to 65 million. And again, we don't act as a, a prime advisor. We, we work as a co-advisor with, with people like yourselves or others. And, you know, we ended up selling that business for 65 million. And I sat down and this was a, a pretty significant crowd that, that bought this business. They were very sophisticated, lots of advice. And, you know, they were really trying to push our valuation down. And the reason they couldn't is because we understood what the assets were. And at the Tombstone dinner, with the new buyer, I was sitting next to him and I said to him, why did you buy that business? And he said, I can honestly tell you, we bought them for what we now know are their intangible assets. And in particular, it was their networks and their relationships and their systems and their processes. And they were able to deliver a better margin than we could. And more importantly, they were able to deliver on time with greater certainty to, to, our, to customers than we could as well. And he said, and what was interesting is that when we used to lose bids to these guys because they got bought by a competitor, the clients would always tell us they were more that we were more expensive and that's why they won. So I said, well, were they? And he said, no. The first thing I did when I bought the business, I went and looked at what they bid. They were actually more expensive than us. And that's how they were able to generate better margins because clients, clients were happy to pay a premium for that certainty of supply. Now, again, it's different in different industries. Now, that was obviously a product business. Service businesses are different again. But at the end of the day, it really is from a client's point of view, understanding what value can you bring to me as a supplier for your product or your service. Now, if I can only get that product or service from you, then that means you almost get 100% market share because I have no alternative. If there's only one source of kryptonite, you know, krypton, I have to get it from that one supplier. I have no alternative. And that's why I talk about that the intangible assets are a proxy for your revenue and margin, but ultimately your revenue and margin is a proxy for your profit, which is a proxy for your return on investment. And that really is the key to it all, is that the strength of your intangible assets is how you determine whether you're gonna win the game or not. And unfortunately, this is not part of the, the accounting standards. In fact, the accounting standards are really stuck in what we would describe as an industrial age. Yeah. The last time they were truly reflective of value was actually 1975, according to the data. Um, in, in fairness to the accountants, they're bound by the accounting standards. Um, lawyers are bound to what the law says. And look, the, the law in most countries doesn't deal with non-registered rights very well. In other words, things outside of patents and trademarks, like trade secrets, are often not even recognized by the law. And if they are, it's often a civil enforcement. But the number one issue we find is that if you don't protect it, they will steal it. And they being competitors, new competitors, sometimes suppliers, customers finding out your pricing information. We find companies don't leak a little bit, they leak like a fire hydrant. So you've raised a couple of really interesting points there, Michael. So, so you've got to protect it. And, and I think you said earlier about don't, don't tell them how you do stuff. That, that's your secret source. Tell them what you do because you need to convey the message about what you do that's different and how it's, it's, it's more valuable and a better proposition than your competitor. But don't tell them how you do it. And you also mentioned that you know, patents are 
you know, my, my uh, take, a waste of time. So how do you protect it without... Yeah, look, the thing with patents, patents, we sort of put it into, in fact, the analogy we use with clients when we're working with them is think of it as like a toolbox. Now, if you've got to put a screw in, you don't use a hammer, you use a screwdriver. And patents are just one of the tools in the toolbox. In fact, I like to think of patents as being a really fine screwdriver. If I need to tighten up my glasses, I can't use a hammer, I can't use a big screwdriver. I need a really fine screwdriver. That is the only tool that is gonna let me you know, tighten my glasses. And patents are a little bit like that. Now, a good patent is worth a lot of money. Now, unfortunately, they are literally needle in a haystack. You know, the USPTO's own figures last time I looked were that 97.4% of all US granted patents never generate one single dollar in revenue. Now, if you then bring into account cost, because these are expensive assets, in fact, a patent over 20 years filed into the major countries is going to cost you $1 million. Now, if you bring into account costs, patents have a failure of about 99.9%. However, if you've got one of those very rare patents where it's potentially very, very valuable, and more importantly, you've got to know it's valuable and the person that it could either um, hurt or be licensed to knows it's valuable, then you can generate a lot of money. And you know, we ended up selling um, a US granted patent for an eight figure sum. And it was the highest price we understand that's ever been paid for a US granted patent. Um, so they can be incredibly valuable, but again, just think about them as a very fine screwdriver. When you need a fine screwdriver, they're invaluable, but for the most part, you're gonna protect it by actually not telling anyone, you know, to your point, and it's something we talk about. We say, look, you can talk about the what, just don't talk about the how. And the how is where the value is. If you're talking about the how, it's probably not gonna end well for you. Um, and more importantly, you've got to explain to anyone who has access to the how, in particular, the guy operating the machinery on the shop floor, that actually, Bob, the way you run that machine, that's actually our secret source. You can't talk to anyone. If you leave this business, th that knowledge has to stay here. Yeah. Well, it's like, I guess, you know, any piece of software, you know, even, even something as simple as Microsoft Word, for example, a word processor, you implement a piece of software into your organization, there's a million ways you can do it. But how you use it, like, you know, for example, of a CRM, what field you use, what process you follow, what how you use it in your organization is a secret source. Yeah, we use HubSpot or Agile or, or Zoho, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's how you use it in your organization that's where the value comes. And it's really interesting, like, um, you know, we can get a value, a formal valuation and, you know, based on assets and hard assets and profitability and what have you and put a value on a piece of paper. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you're selling. It's the buyer who determines the value, not the seller. And, um, and I guess that's an important uh, point to remember. And, and that's the point you're making. And, and what you're doing with, with, with your work is, if, if I've understood correctly, is you're just showing the value and helping the, the, the buyer see the value a lot more clearly. And, and, and you've got a methodology that says, here's why this is worth so much more. And you're doing it deliberately and, and consciously. Whereas a lot of business owners are just running their business and they're doing it from habit and intuition and they've built it up over the years and they've forgotten what they do so well. What you're doing is, is you're, you're bringing it back to the front of the mind. You're going, look at all this stuff you do. You, know, you do it consciously and deliberately. Now I've brought it to the front of your mind. You can do it even more deliberately and even build on it and therefore possibly create even more value. 
Yeah, and I think you've touched on a really important point. I mean, with all you know, due respect to, to business values, I personally, and I, I've done a lot of pr presentations to them on behalf of the accounting bodies. If you don't understand what the fundamental asset is, I don't know how you value it. And one of the conversations I had with a valuer one day is, you know, can you value a horse? And he said, of course not, I can't value a horse. I said, well, it's as tangible as they come. He said, don't be silly. I said, well, you know, if you understand horses, most really good horse people can value it within $500. And it's the same thing with intangible assets. If you don't understand how those fundamental assets work, e.g. a patent, and that most of them have a failure rate, um, or that you can invalidate even granted patents, or how trade secrets work and identifying the assets, then with all due respect, you can't value those assets. It would be like me trying to value a diamond. I have no knowledge about diamonds. I could probably guess. Um, and this is the thing is that like that client I just mentioned, that $20 million uplift came from the intangible assets. Now, if we hadn't appointed them out, I can assure you the buyer wouldn't have said, hey, by the way, I'm prepared to pay $20 million. In fact, to the buyer's credit, they didn't even know what those assets were. They didn't know why that competitor was generating the margin and market share that they were until they bought the business. And a bit like seeing an illusionist. It's really not obvious until they show you how, how it's done. When it is, you go, aha, now I know how it's done. They, and they, they just knew there was something there they liked and it was something special and they couldn't put their finger on it yet, but it was worth something to them. Yeah, the you other helped, aspect- You helped them understand on. how much it was worth to them. Yeah, and, and look, this is probably the, the other key aspect is that, okay, great. You work out that you've got some really valuable intangibles. The other thing that you've got to be able to do is identify who they're valuable to. And we had another client example. Now we're talking a lot about exits, but we often work with clients like you guys do to help them build the value before this event happens. Because often these events are unexpected. Normally it's someone knocking on your door saying, hey, I want, I want to buy your business. And you know, I'm sure we're, we're, we're both in vehement agreement that you know, the best day to get your business ready for sale is the day you acquire the business or create the business. Um, because you should be trying to maximize your returns every day. And, and this was a company that had been going for 30 years. They were a fairly sizable professional services firm. Um, and they went to an investment bank and the investment bank said, guess what, you're worth four times EBITDA, which actually for a services business was actually a pretty high valuation because most services businesses are often you know, down in the twos, maybe the threes if you're lucky. We had a look through you know, the balance sheet, the P&L, there was nothing that special in there, but we said, well, hang on, you guys are operating on the periphery of the insurance industry. The data that you've created over the last 30 years could be used for actuarial purposes. And when we pointed this out to the investment bank who was, who was running the sale process, they kind of said, yeah, we looked at that, but this is gonna be a trade buyer and a trade buyer either has the same or better data. We said, that's a fair point. Why don't, what about other industries? And they said, no, no one else would want this business. And we said, I'm not so sure about that. We found four other industries that would want that business. That business, instead of selling for four times EBITDA, sold for 32 times EBITDA. Wow. It's an eight-fold increase. And the reason it sold for that, it wasn't about what it was worth to the seller or to a competitor. It's what it was worth to that particular industry because that's what the data was worth. In fact, the buyer didn't even want the operating company. They just wanted the data. Now, by the way, most of the time data, you know, it's not the new oil, it's not the new gold, it's actually the new dirt. And like dirt, you've got to either grow something in the dirt or take something out of the dirt. The dirt often in itself is of limited value. 
it's what you do with it. And data is very much the same. So look, that was an example around data. Um, but you know, it's really seeing the business for what it is and not just what it is, but also its potential, but more importantly, finding the right buyer for the particular asset. Yeah. And that, I think that's a really important point because, you know, when you're just selling to competitors, they only want your client base, you know, at a, crudely, they just want your client base and they want to pay the lowest amount for it. They're not seeing the value because they're inside your industry and they, they feel that they know what you know. So it's not valuable to them. It's not until it becomes outside your industry. Yeah, it's a great point. Hey, Michael, there's something a big, I think a big area that we haven't touched on at all, and that's culture. What, what impact does the right sort of culture make on a, on a valuation in your experience? Well, yeah, look, it, it's, I've had this discussion at, at many a conference with people saying, our most valuable asset is our people. And I say, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty close. Um, but, you know, that first scale-up company I did, our biggest asset was absolutely our culture. But, you know, human beings, aside from ourselves and a couple of animal species, we're the only source of creating intangible assets. In other words, creating benefit from in, you know, kind of standard objects. So if you think about the first time that man, and I actually think it was woman, um, created value or created intangible assets or IP, whatever you want to call it, was probably the first time they picked up an animal bone and probably belted their husband over the head with it. <laughs> um, in other words, using an inanimate object in a way that was non-obvious, that is, it's an intangible asset. It's knowledge, it's know-how. Um, and, and then recycling. Exactly. Yeah. So um, again, it's about understanding what these assets are and then working out how to create those assets. And, you know, people create intangibles inside a business and what the business needs to do is be able to create capture points for identifying what is a value. And in particular, what's a really critical, what we call trade secret and a trade secret we define as anything that it, if it got out, it would kill your business. Confidential information. And by the way, trade secrets are normally under 1% of where we see all of the information. Confidential information is normally the next kind of 19%. And the way we define that is that it won't kill you if it got out, but it would really hurt you. And often this is things like pricing information. And then actually 80% of most of the information in most companies is just interesting, but often unimportant and not that valuable. Might be valuable to you to operate your company, but it's probably not valuable to anyone else. So even being able to identify and categorize those, those three key buckets is really critical. And this is something that, you know, government does way better than the private sector. Government is great at classifying information. And, you know, we're fortunate enough to work with Defence and SAS. And, you know, I love working with those guys because they don't care about commercial return. They care about seconds on the battlefield. And, you know, as we, as we worked with the SAS on a particular project, you know, helping them understand not just what their intangible assets were, but how to bring intangible assets inside, you know, the unit enabled them to reduce, in particular, on one of their exercises, you know, an 80% reduction of time in the battlefield. In other words, 80% that no one's trying to shoot at you. That's pretty key if you're, you know, if you're out there putting yourself in harm's way. So yeah, we, we get involved in some pretty diverse projects, but at the end of the day, it's about competitive advantage. And, and for, for the SAS, it was all about competitive advantage. Yeah, well, and that's, with the SAS, it's critical, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah, and that's why, you know, again, it doesn't matter what you call it. In fact, um, the two greatest drivers of true, true innovation, not incrementalism, 
in human history have been war and pandemics. Um, so, you know, and we're not in the middle of a war at the moment. Well, certainly not the UK and Australia, um, but we are in the middle of a pandemic and you're seeing a huge amount of innovation. And part of the thing is not just coming up with the idea, that's the innovation, but how do you make money from it? Yeah. And as every person on this call will know, the day you come up with an idea for a business, you can't be taking any more risk. You really can't. I mean, that is, it's a very brave move. And, you know, the other rule I operate to is I don't take advice from anyone who hasn't lay awake at 3am wondering about how to make payroll. And it's something I've done many a time, um, often by credit card is the answer. Um, and that's the thing is we see lots of what I call well-intentioned theoretical advice. There's not many that's battle proven. And, you know, we've worked with over, you know, 1300 clients um, across the world, different shapes, sizes, products and services. And, it's interesting what you can learn from one company in one industry can be applied to a number of others in particular, yeah. you know, taking that hindsight and applying it as foresight. Brilliant. Michael, this is uh, one of my favorite topics and, um, and working with business owners. So I've always approached it from the point of extracting the business owners um, out of off the tools so that they're not the key salesperson or the key person doing it and then working with them so that, the business doesn't depend on anyone being on the tools and, and you know, any key personality. And yeah, it's my first job ever was in McDonald's um, and, and, and applying that principle. You know, how do, you know, how do they get our kids, our teenagers that we can't get to clean up their room? How do they get them to operate a system diligently? And you know, it's any kid, they train them in their system. And just applying that philosophy so that, you know, one of the things that, you know, I love doing is working with business owners and identifying what their key process is that they've just been doing intuitively over the years, then documenting it. Once you've documented it, you, you get a lot more clarity around it and demonstrate that it exists. And then you can train people to follow it. And once you've got people following it, then you know, you're a long way ahead of the, the competitors, I, in my experience. Most, you know, yeah. I've also been working in the mid-market sector for the last 20 years. And so many business owners are still doing everything by influence and persuasion and you know, leadership role, if you like, that key person. So what you bring is incredibly valuable. And especially to business owners who are starting to look at, you know, hey, I want to exit my business. You know, I've got that three-year time frame. How do I how do I make that real? How do I create value in my business? How do I create value for me? How do I look after my employees as well? The people who help me get here is often a big consideration. Um, I think this is going to be, you know, really looking forward to doing more with you myself um, and Succession Plus here in the UK. What's the one thing? I imagine you've got a, a massive tip there. They're just on the tip of your tongue that you're using. Here's the, the key thing that I want listeners to remember uh, from this conversation with us today. Yeah, it's funny. I got asked this question earlier today, so I ha I've had some practice, but it's the standard question. Um, I got asked this by, by quite a senior business leader. And I said, the first thing is just work out what your assets are. And it's, they're not going to be recorded on your fixed asset register, almost certainly not on your balance sheet. That is the start point. You know, it's like if I dropped you in the middle of a jungle. The first thing you do is you get to a high point and you work out where are you and where are you trying to get to. And look, there's going to be ravines and places you can't cross. There will be challenges. And that probably leads me to my, the, the second point, just following on from something you said earlier. I can't remember if I made this up or I stole it from someone, but either way. Um, and that is that 
yeah, if you think good advice is expensive, wait until you pay for bad advice yeah. or no advice. And you always want to hire the people that know the things you don't. You know, don't take advice from people who can tell you the stuff you already know. You know, and if you think about how you build a business, and I've, I've built a few, um, what I'm really good at is working out all the things I'm not good at and hiring people around me that are really good at them because they yep. make you look good. And any successful business owner that I've ever met, that's often what they're really good at. In fact, it's working out your own level. As I joke with people, it's working out your own level of incompetence at an earlier age than everyone else at the same age. Um, and that's how you build successful teams, both internal teams, but also partners like Succession Press or, you know, say ourselves, is to really help you understand how are you going to make more money from your idea. And that's the core thesis. We, we literally, every time we work with a client, that's what's going through our head is how are these guys going to make more money from what they do? And, you know, we, we're working with a, a quite a famous Australian or now international brand called Rhino Rack. And Rhino Rack pretty much like a, compete with Tule. So if you've pretty much got roof racks on your car in Australia, there's probably a 70 to 80% chance that they're rhino racks. And one of the key assets we've, we've pointed out to them that they don't own is they don't know who their customers are. So when you go and buy their product, the customers don't tell them who they are. So we've got a, a pretty key project um, happening with them at the moment to identify who their customers are. And, you know, they're the first company we're aware of that now has a chief intangible asset officer, a chow. Um, and I'm taking bets, anyone who'd like to take a bet with me that, you know, if you're a major company within the next 10 years, you will have a chief intangible officer. You will have people on your board that are talking to you about this stuff. You'll, you'll be working with someone like us um, to help upskill your own team about what intangible assets are, how to protect them, how to mitigate the risk, but ultimately how to build value from them. Because at the end of the day, as a business owner, it's about generating a return on your investment. And as we all know, you know, for most business owners, when they do an exit, it's often their last roll of the dice. They've got to make their money on that exit. And if they don't maximize it at that time, not many business owners get a second chance to do a second or third business. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic point to leave it on, Michael. And uh, you've really brought the message home. You've shared some great examples. I'll leave uh, some, some details in, in the, the notes to this around how to get in touch with you, but it's Michael Masterton, EverEdge. They can connect with you on LinkedIn, I guess, or, or contact you through EverEdge. Um, what's the website? Um, it's everedgeglobal.com. Don't go to everedge.com because we do have a company that does garden edging, who, by the way, were started out of the UK. Um, I think we're probably the greatest source of referrals. Um, <laughs> If anyone does need a deal on garden edging, I might be able to get you one. But no, it's everedgeglobal.com. And um, I just wanted to thank, you know, Daryl and the team at Succession Plus. Um, you know, it, it's not often that we find people that know how to ask the right questions. One of the things that continues to impress, you know, us from, from you and your team is that you guys are asking the right questions of business owners. And you're also not afraid to work with the rest of the ecosystem in terms of folks like ourselves. And I think that's really important is that no one person has all the answers. And it's the first thing I say to clients is, look, you know, we need to make sure you've got a good accountant, you know, good lawyer, good patent attorney if they need one, um, you know, and good external advisors, in particular around doing things like ESOPs and, and getting that business ready for sale. Absolutely. There's, yeah, you can't do it on your own as your point. And uh, the one thing I've learned is that clients love it when their advisors are working on their behalf behind the scenes. So if their advisors know and trust each other, it just makes life so much easier for the client and they love that. 
Actually, my favorite part is when the, the advisors are disagreeing with each other. Because what that means is you don't have sycophants around you. Yeah. And, you know, I, we love having a good Barney with a patent attorney or an accountant or, or you guys, you know, with, with Craig and the team in Australia. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's what the client wants. They, they want that culture of dissonance around them, that disagreement culture, not in a, a deconstructive way, but in a constructive exactly. way. It just builds for a better outcome. At the end of the day, you know, it's the client's business. I've so, as I've said to a, a clients on a number of occasions, at the end of the day, it's your decision. My job is to try and tell you what I would do if I was you and this was my money. And I think that's a big thing. It's something, you know, I know from Craig at Succession Plus here and, and getting to know you, Daryl, that, you know, you guys really do treat it like it's your business. If you were running that business, what would you do? And at the end of the day, look, it's not your business. It's not my business. We can only give what we, we consider is the best advice possible. But really, the ultimate litmus test is how do you increase that ROI? Because at some point, that's how you're going to be able to put hopefully a very large amount of money in your bank account one day. And the sooner you get your business or you start preparing your business for that exit event, even if it's 20 years down the track, it means you're going to be making a lot of profit and you might not ever want to sell that business. And yeah, I hope that helps. And thanks again for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. It's been great.